Hey book friends, this is Corey. Thanks for listening along as we have a book club of two over a cup of tea. Our goal is to explore beloved genres as well as push ourselves out of our comfort zone and explore genres we might typically overlook or avoid. In each episode, we discuss a randomly selected genre. We will be sharing our reading experience and a brief review of the books we recommended to each other from the previous episode. Also a heads up, so that we can have a rich and in-depth conversation, there may be spoilers about the books we are discussing. All right, let's get started. This is episode seven. Today we are talking about bestsellers in current times. Spoiler alert, in order for us to fully discuss the books, we may share details that you may not want to know if you haven't read the books yet. If so, hit the pause button and come back after you have read it. All right, let's get started. Hey, Corey, so what's been going on with you this past week? Well, so I have some exciting bookish news. I am the newest part-time bookseller at our little local indie bookshop, Brightside Bookstore. Yay! And I had my first training session yesterday. Awesome. It was fun. I, I, I was, I think I felt a little overly confident. And so then when she's like, okay, go out on the floor and start talking to customers. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> so I had to kind of get into my groove and figure out how to, um, not be obtrusive into people's browsing experiences, but also announce that I am there and available to help them talk anything books that they might like. So I'm excited. It's just going to be probably five or six hours a week. Um, but I, I think it'll be a fun little project. It's almost like a hobby and it's checking something off a bucket list. Yeah. And you'll be able to find like new great books that we might want to read for our podcast. Oh my gosh. Yes. There is so many books. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's a, it's a cute little bookstore though. I really like it. Yes. So, and the owners are great. Yeah. I'm super excited. I think it'll be fun. Um, I'm probably crazy for adding one more thing into my life, Mm -hmm. but Uh, I'm going to make it work. And, you know, I think it's going to be one of those things where when you're doing a lot of things that you enjoy doing, even though you're super busy, it doesn't seem like work. Yeah. That's my hope anyways. Cool. All right. So T. So we went in a different direction this week. Um, I don't know if listeners remember back to our first episode when we talked about books and Kiri had me read cooked and I made a joke about having to try kombucha. (laughs) Well, it was only half joking. I was like, well, I'm going to go try this crap and see what I think of it. And it's been kind of an up and down experience. There's some that definitely taste like vinegar and I'm like, I'm not enjoying this Mm -hmm. um, at all. (laughs) But when I was in Oregon, um, one of the girls I was traveling with introduced me to hum kombucha, which is based out of Bend, Oregon. They have the coolest labels ever. They are, highly detailed and have all these little like fun cartoons i don't i can't even explain it it's kind of like where's waldo yes it does remind me of where's Mm -hmm. waldo but i think it has kind of an oregon hippy dippy vibe and um so i fell in love with them the one that we're drinking today is coconut lime the mango passion fruit is also to die for Mm. and it just tastes like a really good fruit juice and there's a little bit of tang at the end but it's not that bad though it's not that it's bad it's really delicious it'd probably be really good with vodka i thought about that <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like is that, will that defeat the purpose will it no, kill the probiotics not at all not at all <laughs> oh it's so it really is. Um, and at least locally for people in Flagstaff, they have it at Target of all places. You would think it would be at like Whole Foods or Natural Grocers. Mm-hmm. Nope. Target. Wow. Target, I mean, is just kind of one of those stores where you walk in and you're just like, wow, would have never expected Target to have this, but okay. Yep. Yeah. So. Cool. So yeah. So, oh, and so for those of you that are like, well, that's not tea. Actually, it, it is. is. So for you, that's what you're fermenting when you make kombucha is black, usually black tea, I guess. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And then you add flavorings like the coconut lime that we are super duper excited about today. Yeah. We should have added vodka for today. That would have, <laughs> this would have been a hot mess podcast. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. So what we're doing this week is bestsellers, which mm-hmm. is pretty exciting. And I think both of our books were in 2016 or 2015, so still relatively new. Mm-hmm. So, Corey, why don't you tell us what makes a bestseller a bestseller? Okay. So, you know, when we think about bestsellers, we're thinking about what the casual reader is usually looking for, especially in the summer, you know, that big blockbuster that they can read on vacation. Um, These tend to be the books that are most prominently on display in stores, too. And um, so I went to our friends at Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. And they define a book's bestseller as a book that is included on a list of top-selling or frequently borrowed titles, normally based on publishing industry and book trade figures and library circulation statistics. Such lists may be published by newspapers, magazines, or bookstore chains. There tends to be bestseller lists for quite a few genres, Mm -hmm. but most people are looking at the fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. And so who makes these lists? Do you have any ideas on who makes them? I would feel like the publishing houses do... Well, Publishers Weekly, which is kind of like their magazine. Okay, mm-hmm. and then I would feel like the New York Times, because yep. this book, for example, Lilac Girls, on the title, says New York Times bestseller. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but are there more? Uh, the, they also listed USA Today, which oh, okay. you know, is kind of a big, and then the Washington Post. Okay. But there are also, um, you know, places like Amazon or Barnes & Nobles will make their own independent bestselling list based on their own sales. So I also found it interesting, Wikipedia added this comment. It says, in everyday use, the term bestseller is not usually associated with a specific level of sales. Hmm. I know. And it may be used very loosely, indeed, in publishers' publicity. Books of superior academic value or literary merit tend to not be bestsellers, although there are exceptions. Huh. That's weird. Well, but you think about it. I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example I mean, there's, there's just so many books out there. So if you don't have the right publicity or people pushing it, and if it's kind of based on volume of sales, but this mysterious like, volume of sales. What would be an example? I feel like Twilight. Oh, I think that would fall into the bestseller category. But it's not It's not really – it doesn't have much academic value or literary No, merit. but they're saying that books of academic value uh, do not end up on these lists typically. Oh, uh, got you, got you, got you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I definitely read the Twilight series and I devoured those four books in like a month. But, you know, it's also an English major writing (laughs) about vampires. So not Mm -hmm. very challenging to the brain. Yeah. But, you know, what I took away for at least from what I read on Wikipedia is that what we should be aware of is that the use of the word bestsellers is subjective. And they're not saying if you sell X, you know, millions of copies, you're automatically a bestseller. Right. There's a lot of factors that come into play. Yeah. Um, So the term bestseller was first recorded in print in 1889 in Kansas City, Missouri, by the newspaper The Kansas Times and Star. Interesting. As I read that, I realized it didn't tell us what book they were calling a bestseller. That would be kind of interesting. Right. Especially in Missouri. Yeah. So maybe for show notes, I'll see if I can dig a little further. Um, But really what started the idea of bestsellers was mass production, printing and whatnot. So it makes sense. Unless you could print in large volumes, you can't really have bestsellers. Right. And the earliest books were usually religious, but they couldn't be very long because if they were too long, they would be too expensive for the average person to buy. Mm. So, again, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Things yeah. you don't think about, but you're like, oh, okay. Totally. 
Um, okay, so what do you think the all-time best-selling books are? This is quiz time. Huh. I'm going to say the Bible. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Harry Potter. Yes, that's in there, too. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I don't know what else. Well, that's a good starting point. I feel like, um, what was that book that Oprah endorsed <laughs> that then she unendorsed she, because the dude lied about the story? Oh, all a, the, tiny, a tiny the, million pieces? Yeah, something. something like that. A million I feel like that was pieces. like a huge book, but maybe not the top bestseller yeah, it's ever. Yeah, not the top, but I know what you're talking about. But okay. I got two. You got two. Yay! Yay. So this is according to the Guinness World Records. The Bible is recorded as the best-selling book with over 5 billion copies sold and distributed. What's also interesting, though, is that the second one is um, quotations from Chairman Mao, also known as the Little Red Book, about communism. Oh, my gosh. Um, and some sources claim over 6.5 billion printed volumes. Wow. And then the last is also religious and the Koran. Um, with, oh. Yep. So I'm surprised the Book of Mormon isn't on there. Well, I feel like all religious texts tend to be overly printed and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. distributed. So those are the best-selling ones. But then um, I did pull some fiction stuff, which you, you guessed one of them. So the top-selling um, fiction, at least according to my resource, was Don Quixote by Ugh. Miguel de Cervantes. God, that book. Which was published in 1605 and has had over 500 million, do- 500 million books sold. It is painful i've never read it i have it if you ever want to borrow mm, it <laughs> um ironically you're gonna love this a tale of two cities oh my God. <laughs> there's uh. a reason she's laughing about that um then the lord of the Rings series and mm. um, le petit prince by antoine de saint exuberi um, i haven't read that book have you i did in high school for mm. french class it's been years but it made me think oh maybe i should go reread i almost picked it for our french versus english genre oh, but okay. then found a different different book that okay. i liked more and then harry potter and the philosopher's stone mm. so really the only two modern i mean that's the really only big modern one um le petit prince was published in 1943 and lord of the rings was published in 1954 wow so um i thought those was interesting to pull those out yeah I love me some Harry Potter. (laughs) The other fun thing that I discovered uh, was that there's a book out there called, I think this is really more aimed at people who are writers who are wanting to make a bestseller, but it's called The Bestseller Code, Anatomy of the Blockbuster Novel. And it was written in 2016, so pretty recently. Mm -hmm. And the authors, um, their names are Jody Archer and Matthew J. Jockers, they created an algorithm that identifies the literary elements elements that guarantee a book a spot on the bestseller list. That takes the fun out of writing. I know. Ugh. I, but I think it'd be an interesting read as a reader <laughs> to kind of see what they say and see if you agree with it. Because they... That's true. They they analyzed over 20,000 novels. Whoa. Yeah. So, although what I would say is that with the conclusions that this article shared with me, and I was like, well, no, no kidding, uh, that theme, plot, character, and settings... Um, oh, that's what... They, so they were analyzing theme, plot, character, and setting to determine what combinations appeal to readers most. And their data shows that their popular books have symmetry in their plot lines and a clear three-act structure, and that they're written in everyday language. And I'm like, okay. I know. It's like, (laughs) you wrote an algorithm that tells you that? (laughs) I think this is a horrible book. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, it was just kind of intriguing, so I thought I would share that up. Yeah. So when we started um, making our lists, 
are we ha- I'd gotten this what at the time sounded like a really great idea, and it was from a, a liter- an AP English literature class, and they, for summer reading, were having students pick in a classic that was considered a bestseller, as well as a more current bestseller, and they were supposed to read them and compare them, and I was like, that sounds so cool, we should totally do that, and Kiri was like, no. <laughs> Just kidding. I think that would be really cool. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where, you know, I think we are still figuring out what we, what kind of experience we want to have with this podcast. And so just to let you know, um, even though we started there, we made some modifications and we decided that we are just going to focus on the modern bestseller. Yeah. And um, maybe some people might say we wimped out, but we're just being realistic, I think. So here's what happened with us. Here's our challenges. Um, First was finding ones that were not ridiculously long. Yeah. Old books are really long. Really long. Like 500, 600 pages. And they're all written in like old English. And it makes it hard to even understand (laughs) what the hell they're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think really finding ones that hold our interest. And again, maybe if we weren't moving at such a fast pace and we had time to kind of marinate and mm-hmm. dig into it, but being realistic with our vision, at least as it is right now, it just wasn't going to work for us. So then we moved, so then we moved on to shorter books. So, oh, so <laughs> I picked um, The Three Musketeers by Alexandra Dumas, which sounded really great. And you picked... I picked The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. I don't think we started, I don't think either of us started either of them because we're like, these are really long. Yeah. We're just not going to get through them. I think I got 15 pages through A Tale of Two Cities and was like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this goes back to our philosophy of life's too short to read books that aren't engaging. And, you know, and we've kind of given ourselves the liberty to abandon if we really aren't feeling it. Mm -hmm. So we made alternate choices and I picked A Room with a View by Ian Forster, um, because I thought, oh, you know, that might be good. And it was just a lot shorter. And I picked Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf because I feel like every podcast should talk about Virginia Woolf. Right. (laughs) And it was shorter too. And it was much shorter. Um, so yeah, yeah, you go ahead. It was definitely, at least my experience with Mrs. Dalloway was, it was definitely like fragmented sentence galore. (laughs) And I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. Well, and there was one sentence early on that was almost a full page. Yeah. I mean, she just used commas and semicolons, and it was one run-on sentence. Mm -hmm. I read it like three times. And that's how Charles Dickens started out. Like, (laughs) it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and it was a full paragraph of that kind of shit with commas. I was like, no, that is a horrible way to start Mm. a book. So I, I dug a little into each of them, and I can give you my first impressions because we're not going to talk about them much. But um, I, 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 I kept going back and forth with A Room with a View. Did you start that one at all? I did. I think I got about 50 pages through, and okay. it, I still found it absolutely boring, so I stopped. Yeah, it, there's not a lot of action, but I think that's kind of the point of the book. It's basically um, a, a young lady and her maiden aunt on holiday in Italy and kind of the hijinks of living at this little boarding house. And they're, and it's what I kind of found fascinating, though, was the commentary on like social structure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and you just kind of it's I think it's Victorian England. Yeah. So actually, I think both are Victorian England. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that was accidental. <laughs> um, so I think really for both of them, just that piece of it of like what is it like to be a, a woman in Europe navigating in the you know the 1920s ish um or the teens maybe was was kind of interesting but yeah they they were slow moving i think if i was writing it for like a paper or something then i could dig into it and really kind of 
parse it out. But again, for the pacing of what we were wanting to accomplish, I was, when Carrie was like, I just don't think I'm going to make it through either of them. I was like, okay, well, change of plans. Let's, yep. let's move on. And, um, Let's just focus on our modern bestsellers. Which was, I think, totally worth it. Yes. Because <laughs> I like them both. Yep. Okay. Um, so, oh, okay. So just a couple quick recommendations back to bestsellers. I thought it would be fun to share what are the current bestsellers right now um, as of the time of recording this. And so they are very heavy. Um, actually, it was very intriguing because it's summertime, right? And so the bestsellers kind of made made sense, but it was also like one of those things of like, really, that's what's going on right now? So four out of the five top fiction bestsellers are mysteries right now. Hmm. Um, House of Spies by Daniel Silva, Two John Grisham, so Camino Island and The Whistler, The Woman in Cabin 10, which has been on my to-read list, and then, um, not too shocking, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, since, of course, the Hulu series is out. Of course, it's having a resurgence. And then, again, what I found really interesting about the nonfiction is it's all about politics. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, again, you think about the world right now. People are trying to figure out what the hell's going on yep. in, in our country. And I was like, yes, that's why these books are bestsellers. So, Probably in all countries because I feel like mm-hmm. with England and Brexit and then all the wars in the Middle East, it's just this whole world is kind of at this weird what the hell is happening stage, I think. Right. So Hillbilly Elegy, which is actually on our book club list for, Mm -hmm. I think, a month or two from now. Um, The only one that's not politically or sociologically uh, connected is Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. (laughs) And I was like, I think even I'm in a hurry and I still don't want to know about astrophysics, but go pussycat go. Um, So then the other three are Rediscovering Americanism by Mark R. Levin. Um, Al Franken, the giant of the Senate by Al Franken. I'm like, really? So you're calling yourself the giant of the Senate? (laughs) And then Dangerous by Milo Milo Yiannopoulos. Hmm. Um, So anyways, I just, I think that was my takeaway and my point in bringing that up is I think you could probably do a really interesting cultural analysis of um, bestsellers based on time of year Mm -hmm. and political and current events. And I felt like these books really (laughs) did reflect where we are right now. Definitely. All right, so enough about just talking about bestsellers. Um, Kiri, let's get started with your pick. All right, so The Lilac Girls by Martha Hulk Kelly. And this is based on real-life um, experiences in World War II. And there's four different women, three, three. three different women. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back and forth between what's happening with them um, at the same time, but in different social structures i think and so a couple of my random thoughts while reading this book is oh boy this is going to be intense and it proved to be very intense yes this was not for the light of heart yeah and second was oh no that doctor is totally gonna hurt people (laughs) like i had so much hope and then i was like she's she's just not gonna be Mm. any good she does not have empathy yeah (laughs) Oh, Caroline and Paul, a love story I wish would work. I really loved them. That was frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And then (laughs) towards the middle, I was like, this is awful. And I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) Because it started to get so... Just the experiments with the girls, okay. like with the that's rabbits. where mm-hmm. that's where I was. I was just like, I can't even imagine how that must feel. And then... 
Finally, my last thought was the ending, a glimmer of hope in a pile of shit. Because I was just like, <laughs> that's just... very poetic. <laughs> Oh, a pile of shit. So I really, really loved this book and I mm-hmm. devoured it in about three days. Mm-hmm. I started it and I just couldn't put it down. Um, and you just, you know, it's not going to be good. Like right. you walk into the book. It's about and, World War II. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it can have a happy ending, but those are shitty times. Yeah. And I, I think it did have a happy ending in the long run but the whole book was basically not you just knew it wasn't going Mm -hmm. to be okay Mm -hmm. and you know it was you could tell from the chapters that most likely all of these characters were going to be connected in some way or another like the three right the three women but did you find i think that was one of the things i wrote i was like that happens so late in the book and this was one of those things where I kind of took your approach and I didn't read the jacket other Mm -hmm. than like maybe the first paragraph Mm -hmm. and so I kept waiting for that connection and I kept going how are these people all related this is really frustrating why are why are you know when when are they all kind of come together right and I think I felt like I think what happened for me is I felt like the jacket cover was misleading. Right, yeah, totally. The three girls walking hand in hand. But what you realize is that this is Caroline, and these are the two sisters. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So I think the only part that I didn't realize was Caroline, how Caroline was going to come into play. Because the Mm -hmm. doctor and the woman were Mm -hmm. definitely in each other's stories per chapter. I mean, you didn't really know which doctor it Mm -hmm. was, but you kind of had a guess. But yeah, this was definitely like, they're friendly. And if you don't pay really close attention, you think that they're all relatively young and that they're like Mm -hmm. walking hand in hand and being joyful. But then you realize that it's Caroline and the two sisters. Yeah. So for those of you that are going WTF, (laughs) the cover has three women walking arm in arm, but their back is to us. So you can't really discern their age, but there's obviously some sort of camaraderie with them because they're walking arm in arm. So I think I, you know, and again, probably because I'd read The Nightingale, I was was envisioning Mm -hmm. it was going to be like spies and that they were working together. And then Mm -hmm. quickly I realized that was not what was going to happen. But I was still kind of like, how are these people all going to be connected completely? Mm -hmm. Um, Which they do resolve towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, but overall, I think, you know, it really was one of those captivating books that are perfect for summer. I mean, it doesn't make you feel happy and celebratory, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's based on true events. And I had no idea that the rabbits were Mm -hmm. even a thing. Like, I knew that they did experiments on people because that's something that you're just kind of aware of. But the fact that they did experiments on this group of women Mm -hmm. and they call themselves the rabbits, you know, Mm -hmm. like let's open up their leg, take out their muscle, fill it with glass and see how their body responds. Like that is the crazy shit that they were doing. And it just mortifies me that humans Mm -hmm. can do that to one another. Yeah. And this was at a, um, a a Polish prisoner camp. So, I mean, not even Jewish. And the Mm -hmm. women in the book were mostly German, but they did have a grandparent Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. Polish, but they were like 90% German is what they had hinted at in the book. Right. My point. Yeah. My point being, they were there as political prisoners. They weren't rounded up because they were Jewish. Like most of the concentration work camps, there was weird happenstance that brought them to that point. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, so I, my, I only accidentally took one quote because I just read through this so mm-hmm. quickly and it's the opening line of, 
Um, if I'd known I was about to meet the man who'd shatter me like bone china mm-hmm. on terracotta, I would have slept in. And yep. I was just like, that is a beautiful way to start a story and me wanting more. Like, mm-hmm. I just was like, that is a lovely constructed sentence that is like, tell me more, Caroline. Yes. <laughs> I wrote that down too. It's like... <laughs> I'm a suck. You know, you it makes you realize how important those introductory sentences are. Yes, because often I do find myself when I'm looking for good quotes, I end up if if it's good, I, it's the first or second sentence yep. in the book, mm-hmm. and that was a good example of one. Yeah. So yeah, like you, I well, I read about half of it in one day because I was traveling back from Oregon, and then it took me about three days to finish it up, just getting back into my normal routine. But it did read fast, and it was funny because my friend Liz, who was on the trip with me, she had picked it up. Uh, at the airport so mm-hmm. and I was like oh I'm getting ready to read that so she kept going oh this is good but she was really great like she didn't tell me anything about the book she just kept going it's getting really interesting I want to keep reading <laughs> but that was good affirmation because then I was really excited about starting to read it because she was like enjoying it yeah bit. yeah um so for me I liked three point of views mm-hmm. again I'm kind of a sucker for those type of gimmicks yep. um and I think um I also didn't expect it to go past World War II. So that was the other thing. Mm. And, and, you know, and again, that's how they kind of ended up all coming together. But I liked that because I feel like a lot of the books, it's like the war ends, resolution, and you don't really ever – people don't often continue on with lives after World War II. And I think it painted a really good picture that, yes, the war is over, but that does not eliminate the trauma of going through that experience. Right, yeah. And um, and for me, that was, I wrote down, it was like, how did they live their life? Did they move on or, or not move on? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, that was a lot of, I think, the second half of the book Yeah, was, yeah. was that. And her, trying to find the, you know, what is her name? Is it Herta that's the main mm-hmm. woman? And the her, doctor? Or no, not the doctor. The the youngest rabbit. What was Cassia? her? Cassia. 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 And her, you know, marrying her childhood crush and then... Not, not being able to really be intimate, both, you know, in love or just having that connection because of mm-hmm. whatever trauma that happened in those camps, I think prevented her from having a intimate relationship with her husband, her daughter, mm-hmm. her dad, his mm-hmm. dad's new girlfriend or wife. I'm not sure if they ever got married, but it was definitely a heart wrenching, mm-hmm. like PTSD of yeah. you can't connect with people anymore because they didn't experience what you experienced and Mm -hmm. you're angry and it was just a beautiful um all-rounded experience for Mm -hmm. knowing those characters yeah yeah and we're talking about a time where you know there wasn't counseling of like you went through a really horrific experience Mm -hmm. you have trauma so let's let's talk through this you know so she had developed these walls and these coping mechanisms to get through this horrific work camp experience so of course how is she going to let her guard down how is she going to go back to a normal life and Mm -hmm. i think you know again it's also about survivor's guilt especially for her Mm -hmm. um and her guilt over her mother and Mm -hmm. all of that but um i think one of the things i wrote down is like what's the deal with the freaking lilacs like throughout the entire book there was like one or two random uh comments about lilacs but did you did you read the ending like the author's notes no Carrie, you need to read that. It's a good thing I do this, right? <laughs> so I you, don't finish stories. <laughs> well, you know, so here we go. This is why we balance each other out. 
Um, so in the author's notes, basically at the Hay House where she kind of retired, where Caroline retired to, mm-hmm. um, it, and they kind of, that was one of the references, I think, to Lilacs is when the Cassia and her sister were um, visiting her, they talked about the lilac bushes. Right. And so the real Caroline was known for the lilacs at this house. Oh. But if you, yeah, so you'll, you just skim the ending and you'll kind of see that a little bit more. But I kept going, what's the deal with the lilacs? And I don't know that, and again, I don't know that they really pulled it together very well. It would have been nice for them maybe to spell that a little bit better. So because I'm curious, I just mm-hmm. Googled lilac meanings and it, uh, it, it's saying that it represents um, innocence mm-hmm. and spiritual development or, you know, spiritual not development but just being spiritual mm-hmm. um and so because they're the earliest bloom they symbolize spring and renewal so maybe yeah. that's mm-hmm. like the renewal of their life after being in the camp yeah and i think there was one comment as well about um i think caroline says her dad talked about how lilacs needed actually a tough winter mm-hmm. in order to bloom mm-hmm. um they needed to go through hardship in order to grow and bloom so i kind of was like okay maybe that's the analogy that they're trying right. to do here but there was actually meaning to lilacs for caroline mm-hmm. in, in real life mm-hmm. so i um that that kind of drove me a little bit bonkers but tied to that i love that you looked up um, <laughs> at the meaning because did you pick up on how cassia would talk about the meaning of people's names and yeah. the meaning of flowers mm-hmm. and trees and it was so gently kind of just interwoven into that mm-hmm. but i just found that really lovely yeah i i was like oh yeah that's really cool yeah so yeah. um yeah so let's see here i'm gonna see if there's anything else oh herta we gotta talk about herta for- oh god so Herta's the doctor that we keep alluding to. And you who, really like her in the beginning of the book. You did? Well, I mean, she just was so innocent. She was like, I'm going to help people before she went to the camp. And then she went to the camp and she was like, I can't ever do this. These are people. And then it's like the next time we hear her, she's like being an, I was about to say the N, like mm. Nazi, but that's a horrible, I'm not, I refrain from using that well, word. Well, she was a Nazi. It's true. Yeah, I, I forget I think- that she was like a Nazi and that she was like for yeah. the Jewish being... Yes. you know, disintegrated because she believed in the cause. Uh, that's true. I just uh, forgot it. I wanted to forget about that because um, I wanted her to have some likable characteristic. She had no likable uh, characteristics. She kept Cassia's mother's ring. I was so, so angry at mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. and that she lied to her about it. <gasps> there was just, she was one of those characters that you just have so many feelings towards them. Mm-hmm. They're not usually good feelings. <laughs> no. Um, and then it just kept getting worse, even mm-hmm. in her old age. I was like, maybe she's going to be like, I regret it. But she didn't really ever say that. She was still fully believing that Hitler mm-hmm. was the God and mm-hmm. we should follow what he says. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, I... Uh, you know, again, yeah, I was not a fan of hers. I think she was written in a way that we she was unlikable. Yeah. That was intentional. But I just wanted to shake her. Um, I felt like, or maybe even punch her. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote punch her. <laughs> I was really annoyed. Strong like, words. <laughs> yes, yes. But she, uh, the words I wrote down is naivete, stubbornness, blindness, mm-hmm. lack of understanding of right and wrong, only mm-hmm. in it for herself. Yeah. And, you know, and I try to, you know, there's obviously that whole awkwardness where she, the, the sexual favors for the butcher. Yeah. But even then, it was like she had no sense Who was of, her uncle? Right. It, but even then, from that point, even, she was just kind of like, 
this is what I got to do so yeah. that I can go to school. Like she really was selfish. Like she, she had no empathy. Yeah. She had no understanding of how her actions impacted others. And she drank and bought and drank the Nazi Kool-Aid. Like she was not a redeemable character at all. Yeah. Um, she had no, I mean, she had no regret. She had no remorse. Right. I mean, even when Cassia confronted her at the end, when she found her, she was not remorseful. I mean, she showed a, a, maybe a tinge of sadness about what happened to Cassia's mother. But not really. But not really. She yeah. was kind of like, well, you know, that's this just is what happens. Yep. Yeah. You know, it also brings up the point. I remember a few years ago, they arrested a Nazi older, like he was in his 80s or 90s, and they arrested him and sentenced him to life in prison. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, like, I just don't know how I... <laughs> Like, that brings up so many mixed emotions of, like, Mm -hmm. but what do you do in a communist era where you either die or you do the bidding of somebody else? Because a lot of those people I don't think necessarily wanted. I mean, I know that a lot of them were like, we don't like the Jews, they're taking all of our money. Mm -hmm. But there had to have been people that just, in order for them to survive for their family, they had to take the Kool-Aid and pour it out behind their back, but they still had to take it in order for survival. So how do you Mm -hmm. like that ethical of, do you not do something and perhaps die and your family die? Or do you do something and hurt other people? Like that is such a tricky Mm -hmm. situation. And that's what brought it up to me a lot because, you know, she was sentenced to life in prison and then she got early parole Mm -hmm. and you know, I still feel like she was still anti-Jewish people at that point, but I'm kind of just like, yeah, I don't know. It <laughs> brings up so many weird emotions for me of, uh, yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know if anybody really, I mean, I guess there are people that really were into it and believed it was the way, but my like hopeful, positive hope is like everybody was just mm-hmm. doing it to maintain their own sense of security and yeah, I don't know. This is becoming a very political conversation. We should probably ha. stop, but but no, I think you bring up a good point because I would say I have been leaning toward I would lean in this particular situation more towards the judgmental of this was wrong. Yeah, you should have known this was wrong. Totally. And I mean, I guess I have not been in that situation, and right. I hope I never am. But part of me, as I'm listening to you, is going, they still could have taken the higher road. That's true. They, you know, they could have said, you know, basically because still at the end of the day, for me, they were saying that their lives and their family, the lives of their family, were more important, right. than anyone else's. Yeah, that's and a good point. I think that's probably a very natural thing that would happen, and obviously, lots of people did it. But I'm just like, I don't know. Yeah. I, it's a hard situation. I just... And I think there's a difference between the people that were, say, running the concentration camps and maybe the average German citizen that was just turning a blind eye. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, the people that were actively involved in the concentration camps, they just had a level of evilness in them that, I, you know, I... It, oh. <laughs> it's monsoon season. <laughs> yes. So there you go. I said evilness and thunder came. That threw me off. Whoa. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, again, ethics and yeah. um, the last couple of weeks we've really had some interesting thoughts on ethics and empathy and yeah. medical stuff. Yep. Weird themes. Yep. Um, kind of my last thoughts were, again, and we've talked already a little bit about this, but I thought all the characters had flaws, which was realistic. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, as we've been just talking about even a little bit, how do you move on from this experience or can you? Um, you know, closing themselves off to prevent further pain and loss seemed to be a common theme, mm-hmm. but then it was also self-sabotage and that they were, their relationships were stunted as we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of frustrating. 
Um, I also, I don't know if you felt this way, but in a weird way, I felt like the story was somewhat predictable. I didn't feel that way. Really? Yeah, just because everything kind of came left field. Like, you have the love story between Mm -hmm. Paul and Caroline, and I'd never thought that he would go back. You know, like, that wasn't, like, I didn't realize he was married, like, until it was said, you know, Uh he was married and Uh his wife is in France. Uh Um, Yeah, I just didn't feel, maybe because I was so engrossed in it, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't really spending time to think about Mm -hmm. what I was reading, and I just kept turning the page that I didn't find it predictable. Okay. Yeah. Well, I did jot down a few examples of that, and I just, I don't know. So, what I... I may not know exactly what I wrote down was that I might not know exactly how it was going to happen, but I anticipated a lot of the events and choices that occurred. Mm. And I felt like I knew where it was headed, even if I didn't know exactly the details. So Peter with his daughter at the benefit, um, towards the end when Caroline's all pissed and thinks that's oh, his right. Wife. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, knew that was his daughter. Like, yeah. Um, the, the woman who was the first patient on stage when Caroline goes to Poland and they're talking about the, when, when she meets the rabbits for the first time, I knew that was going to be Cassia, even though, okay. Like maybe I assumed that as well. Um, Matka's bad ending after getting close to her. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, Caroline wanting Cassia to go look for Herta. I kind of predicted that that was where that was headed. Yeah. I was kind of just hoping that, uh, Matka would reappear. Yeah, like that she wasn't really dead and that they just Mm -hmm. did crazy ass experiments on her too but then it just kept getting longer and longer without her and I was Mm -hmm. like, oh gosh darn it. Yeah. So for our listeners, Matka was Cassia's mother Mm -hmm. who um, ended up at the concentration camp. It was the two sisters and the mom and uh, she was taken away she had developed a an interesting relationship with Herta. She was her assistant. Mm-hmm. And then there was another, um, I think a nurse yeah. who was very jealous of Herta. And so she caught them having, um, kind of a fun time together. And I, she basically to betray Herta, um, you know, made it so that Matka ended up getting, um, executed. Yeah. Yeah. And so just a side note, we're kind of going pretty long on this, but, um, I, I, watched the boy in the striped pajamas after I read this. Is that good? It broke my heart. Like, it's just like, oh God, because he did, the little boy, you know, makes friends with another little boy that's on, in a concentration camp and Mm -hmm. he decides to help him and he crawls under the fence and it's just like this (laughs) gut wrenching. I just was like, okay, I can't do any more World War II stuff right now because my, heart is just so sad so don't read this book and then watch that movie like give it some time (laughs) yeah world war ii is always just tough material yeah it always is i can't even imagine no again it goes back to that how is how can humanity get to that point right yeah yeah all right we should probably move on to your pick Corey. yes and thank you listeners for sticking with us this is a long one but i guess that's a sign also um lots of things to talk about um So mine was Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler, and I picked it because I'd heard about it on another podcast and was intrigued by the restaurant theme. And this is her uh, debut novel, and I kept asking myself while she was writing it, while I was reading it, I was like, she must have worked in a restaurant. There's no way that she could have written this without having some sort of restaurant experience. So I did go looking, and um, based on an interview she did with Vanity Fair, uh, she did work in a New York City restaurant for about seven years. 
prior to enrolling into the new school to do her MFA. So she definitely was thick into the scene that she was describing. I, um, I loved this book. I, I, Curious kind of hinted that maybe it wasn't one of her favorites, <laughs> but so I will kind of go through my stuff first and then we'll let Carrie share. But I think one of the reasons I loved it, and Carrie probably doesn't know this about me, but I felt like I was reliving a bizarro version of my first couple years out of college. Hmm. And I started to remember my own 22-year-old self who literally worked at our one nice restaurant in my hometown as a waitress, my only service job. Wow. And, um, and it was a fine dining restaurant. And I entered this whole new world where... I learned how to appreciate food and wine. I think that's what really turned me into a foodie. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned words like velouté and coulis. <laughs> I'm like, what's Velouté is basically chicken broth. Coulis is a sauce. Huh. So there you go. But they sound really fancy, right? They do. And most importantly, I met and dated my own bad boy chef who eventually broke my heart. Oh. Yes. Yes. My last serious relationship before Robert. Wow. So I was just like, oh, don't do it. He's so, <laughs> don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, so, you know, I think for me, it was, it was, it was just an interesting lens as I thought about my own experience. Um, I felt like it had a bit of a memoir feel. Did you get that? No. Okay. <laughs> So it was written, um, first point of view, by the main protagonist, Tess. And um, it was sectioned by season, so starting with summer. And so, you know, which again kind of drives a little bit of the restaurant world, too, because you change, often change your menus based on what's seasonal. And um, at the beginning, it had some really great, great quotes about sour, salt, sweet, bitter, and umami. And um, when I go to quotes, I'll share something about that. And I think, you know... And I think even the book jacket says this, but it's a story of starting over. It's about rebirth. It's about coming of age. Again, she's 22. Um, One of the crazy things is, and I didn't realize that this was probably intentional on the author's part until the very end, but you're introduced to her as she's coming into New York City after graduating, graduating from college. And she just alludes to moving there from some small place. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, um, someone goes, where were you from again? <laughs> I don't think I know. And she's like, Ohio, which again was kind of a weird little connection for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, Ohio's right next to Indiana. So I right. totally get, she's that naive Midwestern girl. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I gotcha Tess. Um, I thought the language was beautiful. I thought she was a beautiful writer. It was very poetic. Um, I think she, I just felt pulled in. Like I've only been to New York city once, but I felt like I could see the city. I could feel the heat. I wrote in my notes that I felt like it was a love letter to New York City. Um, mm. It showed the ugly, stressful side behind the curtain, but it still feels a little bit romanticized. And it really made me want to eat and drink and go to a nice <laughs> restaurant. Um, I felt like she really made you feel the discomfort of starting a new job and being the outsider. Yeah. Um, the complexity of coworker relationships. Yeah. Um, and I think understanding restaurant life as a profession, I think sometimes we are like, oh, you're a server. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're in this level of restaurant, the people are doing this as a profession. Yeah. Like they are committed to understanding the food, to the wine, all of that. And I think she really um, kind of added some enlightenment to that. Um, I think she was really good at, and this is where I was like, she had to have worked in a restaurant, but those moments of humiliation, pain, exhaustion, like you could just feel it. You're just like cringing for them. Um, and then there's just these really cool interludes. Like she would do these brief homages to seasonal foods. And I feel like she engaged all my senses with her writing. Hmm. Um, 
So yeah, so I have some quotes, but I thought I would let you jump in and give me some of your opinion. So I guess uh, I don't tend to read the back jacket of books because I like to be surprised in a lot of ways. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like watching the movie trailers at a movie. You just, they tell you all the good parts and then you go to the movie and you're like, I love the movie trailers. I don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of random thoughts was what the hell is her name? Because we don't hear her name until like halfway through the book or towards the end when you realize her name is Tess, unless you've read Mm -hmm. the back sleeve and then, you know, but I didn't. But that's also because they gave them, everyone had nicknames in the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So another one is all the people working at this restaurant seem like giant assholes. Probably. Did you get that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the egos were just full Huge. strong, especially well, Simone. Oh like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, how old is Simone? I wrote that down too. <laughs> yes. Yes. She's 37. Yeah. It does come out at some point in there. Cause right. I wrote, I wrote it down and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Which again, I started thinking, gosh, for a 22 year old, she must've seemed old-ish mm-hmm. and very sophisticated mm-hmm. and I've kept thinking yeah she's wanting to emulate her because right she seemed very worldly and she'd been doing this forever yeah and, and it kind of seemed like Tess was maybe toying around with her sexuality because there mm-hmm. were times when I definitely oh she was totally yeah attracted. Was to, to Simone, Simone mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. I just kind of felt like that sexual tension and mm-hmm. then she started dating Jake <laughs> and then that sexual tension and then the sexual tension between the three of them I was Ooh. like you guys should just have an orgy and get it over with like <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, and so I didn't really like this book, and I think it's just because I found mm-hmm. Tess annoying, and I found mm-hmm. her a weak character. Okay. And perhaps that's because she's, you know, from a small town in Ohio, but I feel like college tends to harden people a little bit. Like, they're not so naive mm-hmm. when they come out of college. I feel like out of high school, you're totally naive because your parents have been doing everything for you. Mm-hmm. But college, usually you live on campus, you have to study more there's more responsibility being in college and I just she wasn't a likable character to me none of those characters were likable I hated all of them right like Jake was an asshole (laughs) Simone was this weird narcissist Mm -hmm. the freaking restaurant manager that Tess ends up boning I'm just Mm -hmm. like are you kidding me like what the hell is that it was just (laughs) I just I wanted to stop after 50 pages because I was like is it going to get better? And so I kept reading uh-huh. and I read the whole book, but there was no sweet redemption. Well, that's true. The like, ending was a little tough. Yeah. It just is like, I wanted, if the characters are going to be shitty and you're going to mm-hmm. hate the situation and the people involved, mm-hmm. I feel like there should be some sort of enlightenment or sweet redemption at the end because mm-hmm. life is already hard. I don't want to yeah. read about hard life. I mean, which is funny because <laughs> we just read the Lilac Girls, but you know, it was, I was hoping for something a little bit more cheery. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, and again, see, this is what's so fascinating because I think I, from the beginning, I wouldn't say I liked Tess, but I could understand Tess. And again, I think because I could track some similarities and I, I would disagree with you on the college piece. Um, for a couple things. Obviously, I work with college students, so I feel like I'm right. somewhat of an authority. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I really feel, and I, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but really, the more I think about it, I feel like this book, this even though this is a novel, it really is somewhat autobiographical because um, the author is from Ohio herself. Right. And she went to a small college called Kenyon College. And just generally speaking, and um, I think college often adds this bubble and this safety net. And yes, you mature and grow, but 
I think really until you get out into the real world and you start interacting I mean, with real people, especially if you go to like a small private liberal arts college and you live on all four years and it's, it's a different world. So then to become from small town Ohio to New York City, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and again, I think that's why this is described as a coming of age story. And, you know, and I think she's probably not meant to be 100% likable because, but I think we also have to cut her some slack because she's figuring her shit out. Yeah. I just, I grew up so differently. Like I had so many responsibilities by the time, by the time I was 14 that I just, I've always felt more of an adult because I've had so many hardships growing Mm -hmm. up that I kind of had to. And so when I see somebody being a giant doofus, I'm just like, (laughs) Come on now, let's yeah. get it together. Yeah. But at where I think, you know, I can see my own naivete and immaturity coming out of college still and the growing up that I did in those first couple of years. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it is interesting, but I, for whatever reason, I, I, it really spoke to me and I just, I loved it. I really <laughs> did. I, I want to own a copy of it. Um, <laughs> Okay, so I do have a couple quotes. Um, oh, let me let me just look at my notes here to see if there's anything I wanted to. Oh, I did talk about relationships, so we already touched. I think on most of this, but I think again, she did a really great job of reminding you what it feels like when you're at the start of a relationship, mm-hmm. and it's just about the two of you, and you abandon everyone else. Um, I wrote down Jake, 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 the ultimate mysterious bad boy, which makes him so desirable. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I you know I was sad for her at the end when I re- when she realizes that she never really belonged there and that she didn't have real friends when she was so sick mm-hmm. and she had no one to take care of her. Yeah, I think you know that was when she really started growing up. I think she realized that this was not the life she wanted and that these were fair weather friends and that there was a better world out there for her. Yeah, um, I think at that point I was just still so irritated with her that I was like, "That's what you get." Oh, <laughs> uh, see, sometimes empathy, like, la- like sometimes I lack empathy with characters and other times I'm like, oh, I feel so bad. But I'm just like, for mm. this one, I think just because I didn't like her, I was like, that's what you get. Yeah. But, well, and, you know, maybe it has to do with the modern times, too. And there's yeah. not like a war that is influencing. Right. Her. But I think this is more realistic. I mean, I but yeah. Um, so I liked uh, doctorates in talking shit to guests. Um, fluent in rich people that was the 51% of it um, referencing how you were successful as a server Um, strange pressure to be across from a man who wants something you don't want to give Mm. and um, this I thought really showed her youngness I had a strange feeling today I said tentatively wondering how people started conversations would it always feel like I was intruding the feeling when you are the young one and everyone around you seems so sophisticated and worldly. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Um, and she goes, you think I am stupid. I am not. I was just hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the poetry pieces, I think here's just a couple quick examples. The ambrosial twilight tumbled off of the cliff sides of the buildings and pooled on the sidewalks. Um, the air tasted of steel knives and filtered water. Mm, yeah. And then I had a couple in here, and then I'll pass off to you. Um, I think this was one of those inner. One of the things that I liked also was when they would have those weird interludes where you were catching like snatches of conversation of all the servers. Mm-hmm. So I think this was one of them. Um, the sky was so blue. It's only been five years. My skyline was never marked with an absence. Remember that wine school? Windows on the world? I've been underneath them, on the F train coming from Brooklyn just one hour before. I was late for high school, but glued to the TV. 
I had taught a class there on Rioho on the night of September 10th. Chef made soup, so I heard something and I looked out my window. You know I'm on the east side. It was too low, but it was steady and went by almost in slow motion. The owner set up a soup kitchen on the sidewalk. No, I haven't been there. The smoke, the dust, but the sky was so blue. My buddy was the psalm at the restaurant. We came up at Tavern on the Green together. You guys never talk about it. I was going into a class called, I'm not joking, Meanings of Death. I've always wondered, if I had been here, would I have stayed? And I thought, New York is so far away. My cousin was a firefighter, second wave responder. Nothing on television is real. But am I safe? But what else is there to do but make soup? But I really can't imagine it. I was pouring milk into my cereal. I looked down for one second. I was asleep. I didn't even feel the impact. A tide of people moving up the avenues on foot. Blackness. Sometimes it still feels too soon. It's our shared map of the city. Then the sirens for days. We never forget, really, the map we make by the absences. No one left the city. If you were here, you were temporarily cured of fear. Mm. So they're talking about 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just pieces like that throughout this whole book of, I mean, to me, this is a poem. Right. And it's just beautiful. And, mm-hmm. and you just kind of get sucked into it. And then you get back into the grind of the restaurant right. life. And I don't know. There was just, I can't recommend this book enough. I love it. <laughs> and I have a couple quotes. Um, the first one is, I had never thought of a tomato as a fruit. Mm-hmm. The ones I had known were mostly white in the center and rock hard. But this was so luscious, so tart, I thought it victorious. So, some tomatoes tasted like water, and some tasted like summer lighting. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just, I hate tomatoes, because most of them are rock hard, and they taste (laughs) awful. But having, like, a fresh-grown tomato from your garden, and that pop of juice in your Mm -hmm. mouth is really delicious. Oh, I eat tomatoes as a snack in the summer, but I get them from the market. Totally. Mm -hmm. And then the other quote that I have is, you know what I dislike? When people use the future as a consolation for their present, I don't know if there's anything less helpful, which, you know, I like that. And then the last one is life is what happens when you're waiting. Mm-hmm. And that's very that true. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, the the little bits were the season again the seasonality of um, she would talk about walking into the restaurant when there's a special ingredient that was mm-hmm. seasonal and her kind of reaction and description to it. So um, yeah, it was if you're a foodie and you like coming of age stories, I say go for it. Um, yes, know that there are definitely some uh, feisty scenes, sexual and language mm-hmm. and whatnot. But it is so be aware of that. But I. I think it's a realistic portrayal of a young girl figuring out her stuff in her early 20s Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in New York City. Yeah. Okay. So where are we headed next? Um, One of the things that we talked about is that we wanted to explore books by diverse authors. And so we decided that we would time it with when different cultural heritage months occur here in the States. And so we're going to spend two weeks um, with each Cultural Heritage Month, and we're going to do a fiction book in a nonfiction book um, based on someone from that culture of origin. And Hispanic Cultural Heritage Month is coming up. It occurs from September 15th to October 15th. And so for our first selections, we're going to start with nonfiction. Carrie, what did you pick? So I ended up picking Nobody's Son, Notes from an American Life by Louis Alberto Urea. Mm-hmm. And the description is it's a potent memoir of a childhood divided. Born in T- 
Tijuana to a Mexican father and an Anglo mother from Staten Island. Uriah moved to San Diego when he was three. His childhood was a mix of opposites, a clash of cultures and languages. In prose that seethes with energy and crackles with dark humor, Uriah tells us a story that is both troubling and wildly entertaining. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I feel like I read a lot of um, memoirs by women, so I'm looking forward to reading one by a Hispanic um, male because yeah. I think that'll be different for me. Yep. And then I picked Just Like Us, the true story of four Mexican girls coming of age in America by Helen Thorpe. And it's a, the description says, a powerful and moving account of four young women from Mexico who have lived most of their lives in the United States and attend the same high school. It's set in Denver, Colorado, and I think that it also said it was on the eve of their high school prom. Uh, The key thing is that two of them have legal documentation and two of them do not. And so just like us is the story of them being friends, um, but the vast differences between their status within um, our country. Mm -hmm. It'll be an interesting read i think i think so yeah um i'm looking forward to both of them me too cool all right people all right catch you later kiri bye hey book friends we hope you enjoyed our conversation today thanks for listening along with us head over to our podcast site to share your recommendations and your opinions with us on the books we have read that website is booksandteapodcast.com it's also where you will find our podcast show notes with a full list of titles for the books along with our favorite tea and what we mentioned today If you are on any social media, feel free to stop by our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter accounts. You will find those links on our website. To be the first to hear about the next new podcast and what we are working on, make sure you are signed up to our newsletter.